Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, today we have a very special guest. We have Brian Burke, who's the author of The Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications, which is a great book that I've uh, been reading and um, have also shared with my family and friends. Definitely recommend it. Um, he's the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, vertically integrated real estate private equity firm founded in 2001 with over having acquired over $800 million of multifamily and that's 4,000 units and 750 single family homes. So got a lot of experience, uh, 30 years of experience, and I'm excited to learn from Brian. So Brian, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me here, Ben. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. So uh, to start it off, can you tell us about your first milestone in real estate and maybe a little bit of how we got there? And um, yeah. My first milestone in real estate was really getting my first deal. And, you know, I was like 20 years old. I was not too far out of high school. Uh, you know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any money, uh, but I, I found a property I wanted to buy and the seller was willing to carry back the down payment. So I found a finance company that would finance uh, the bulk of the purchase price. And I found a seller who would carry back the down payment. So I was able to buy that property with no money down, which was a great fit because I had no money. Uh, so there was no really no other option. It was either buy with no money or don't buy at all. So that was my first milestone was just getting that first deal under my belt. And what, what was that deal? Was it a, a single family? Single family. Yeah, it was single family and I bought it to rent it out. And uh, I, I did and sold it a couple of years later. And I don't even know if I made any money on it. I think I've, I got probably more experience than I did profit out of it, frankly. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. I guess um, going from there, how did you, you know, was real estate always your full-time job or how did you kind of get into, you know, being uh, an entrepreneur in real estate? Well, when I, when I bought that first investment, I was a, a checkout clerk at a grocery store and I was making like 13 bucks an hour. And so, you know, again, I didn't have any money, right? No savings, no nothing. Uh, but I always wanted to be a real estate investor. And, you know, that was kind of the first, my first uh, foray into doing it. And then, you know, I had to make a living and I wasn't making good money at the grocery store. And it's going to take a while for my real estate business to build up. So I went into law enforcement and I, I worked at a, a local public safety department, which was like a combined police and fire department. And, uh, you know, kind of worked my way up through the ranks uh, at that department on both the police side and the fire side, uh, which gave me a, a lot of life experience and uh, seeing crisis and turmoil. And, you know, the only time anybody would ever call me is if it was their worst day of their life. Uh, so, you know, you get to uh, see a lot of things and do a lot of things. And and at the same time, I was also kind of working nights and weekends because I was on swing shift with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. So I had almost the whole business week available and I would use that business week to go out and try to buy real estate investments and find properties to buy and houses to flip. And it was a grind. I mean, it took a long time to do it and it took a long time to figure out how to finance it. Uh, but you know, I was, I was working for a paycheck the whole time I was getting started in this business. Yeah. Uh, that's a interesting way in. I mean, it just, 
it's just funny. I always learn how many different ways that there is to get into real estate. Um, so, I mean, no one should be discouraged for sure. So um, I guess from there, you start to, I guess you did a lot of single family fixed and flips. At some point realized that you wanted to do bigger assets, I guess, kind of, you describe your motivation and, and how you got started with, um, I guess, investing in, in bigger assets? Yeah, my first uh, my first introduction to this was after I had I'd probably done a few dozen flips, maybe even as many as 100. And uh, I, w- I had bought a few houses that I kept, you know, and I, I thought, well, I'll hold on to one every once in a while. I'll just keep one as a rental. And so I did that. And uh, after a while, they had gone up in value a little bit. And I realized like, I could sell these, do a tax deferred exchange and buy an apartment building because that's what monopoly is, right? You buy, you trade four houses for a hotel. Uh, well, that's what I thought I would do. So I sold the two houses and I bought a 16 unit apartment building. And that was my first multifamily purchase. That was 21 years ago. And uh, and I thought, you know, this was this is a great way to like earn passive income while I'm doing all these house flips. It's like house flips are cool, but if you stop doing it, then all of a sudden now you're not making anything. Uh, so if I, I thought if I could buy income property, then even if I stopped flipping houses, I could still have income from the income property. At least that was my theory. It didn't quite work out the way I thought, uh, but that was my theory. <laughs> and so so what ended up when ed, what ended up happening? Um, that it wasn't the way you thought reality happened. And, and, you know, the, the reality of income property is they don't produce a lot of income unless you have a lot of it. And, you know, and I mean, a lot, a 16 unit apartment building, isn't going to allow you to retire off of, uh, off of the income, especially when you got a loan to pay and maintenance and upgrades and capital and uh, expenditures and all that stuff. It eats up a lot of the profits. So you're, you know, you're lucky if you make a little bit here and there, and that's what, I learned early on that, you know, rental property ownership is a grind and you've got to be able to accumulate a pretty sizable portfolio if you want to live off the income. And and I just found that 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 really wasn't going to be the best route for me. So uh, I kept buying income property just because I I wanted to build a base of assets and actually uh, gain wealth because there was a difference between getting income to be able to quit my job and, and building wealth. So that became less of an income strategy and more of a wealth building strategy. And, and then I, I went back, you know, to how well, I never, didn't really go back to house flipping. I never really stopped. Uh, but house flipping was my primary source of income for a while uh, until around middle of the 2000s decade, right around 2005, six, the, the market was just so crazy. I'm like, I got to stop, you know, because there's going to be some massive chaos that's about to happen. So I really kind of pulled back and just focused on my commercial investments and the whole real estate market collapsed. And when the real estate market collapsed, it was uh, on, on one hand, very challenging, but on the other hand, it was extraordinarily exciting because it's like, now I can finally buy a lot of deals. And that's when my business just totally blew up. I was, you know, I went from doing a dozen house flips a year to doing over a hundred house flips a year. Uh, and we were ruined really, really, really well. So it was it was pretty fascinating times and just taking advantage of what the market was presenting us. Yeah. So I, I want to get a little bit deeper into that because, you know, there is a lot of people in real estate who have not lived through 2008. I, I happen to have not. I'm only 21, but um, I'm really fascinated with, with what went on there. Maybe or maybe not. There's some similarities with going what's going on now. We can get to that. But um. Can you tell me tell us a little bit about your experience in 2008? Um, 
I guess, did you have any, you know, I guess, was there any um, bad, bad things that were happening to you personally? And I guess lessons that come from that, but um, obviously I would love to hear about the opportunity that also uh, came, came out of it. Yeah. I mean, it was a mixed bag. It was kind of weird because like on the bad side, you know, I had bought a 60 unit apartment building in 2008 and by 2009, the bottom fell out of the economy. And I mean, Lehman Brothers collapsed, Bear Stearns collapsed. I mean, the whole uh, banking system was imploding and it was just all kinds of chaos. Uh, that resulted in you know an economic downturn that resulted in mass layoffs, people losing their jobs and income cuts to income, that sort of thing. So my apartment building was like, I used to joke that half the units were empty and the other half weren't paying. Uh, and, and that was kind of how it was, actually. And it got so bad at one point that the rental income from the property was only just enough to cover the expenses. I could pay the insurance, the property taxes, the management fees, you know, repairs, utilities. But there was zero dollars left over to pay for the loan, the debt service. And that was fifteen thousand dollars a month. Well, uh, I was also fortunate that house flipping business was going crazy. And so we were buying and fixing and flipping and making a lot of money. So I was able to uh, actually pay that $15,000 a month payment out of my very own pocket from the money I was making from my house flips so that I could salvage that deal and make sure my investors didn't lose any money. Uh, so on one hand, it was painful, but on the other hand, it was profitable. So it was a weird time for me because there were there were ups and downs. It was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you, you started to touch on a big theme from your book that the sponsor is the most important part of the deal. It sounds like you were a good steward of your investors' capital that obviously if you're here for the long run, you know, I'm sure even though it was a tough time, people who were invested with other sponsors who weren't as as a, I guess, considerate or as long-term thinking as you probably, you know, decide, you know, you're the guy and the other ones who might not be as um, prudent uh, would not be as, as good to invest with. But I guess I want to touch on that theme, like in terms of the importance of investing with, with a good sponsor and kind of would love to, you know, hear you tell us a little bit about um, your thoughts on that. Yeah. It, at the time, a lot of people were walking away from deals and handing the keys back to the bank and letting them foreclose and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's I, the whole time, you know, of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, this is stupid. You know, I'm right cutting these $15,000 my checks, throwing good money after bad. You know, what's the end game here? But on the other side, I knew that if I default on this loan, uh, I'm going to ruin my credit. I'm going to ruin my ability to get loans on future properties. I'm going to ruin my relationships with investors. They're going to tell everybody they know. And it was kind of funny about five years after this all started, everything had kind of come back around, right? The economy was better. Incomes were better. Rents were up and all this stuff. And the property was cash flowing and paying the debt on its own. Uh, the value had gone up and I sold the property and it was kind of fun to call up the investors and be like, you know, hey, I am uh, just wanted to give you a heads up. I'm about to send you a check. And they're like, send me a check for what? It's like all your money back plus the profit that you made. And they're like, oh, I wrote that investment off years ago. I didn't even think we were ever going to see that money. And it's like, don't ever give up when I'm at the helm. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was it was really fun to be able to, to do that. And, and now, you know, I can tell investors, new investors, you know, why should I invest with you? Well, you know, we've been doing this for you know, with investor money for 22 years, 
And we've never lost a dime of investor principle. Now, had I walked away during those times, I would not be able to say that. And those words are valuable and it means a lot. And it's really been uh, very helpful for our growth. And we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for the decisions that I made, you know, back then, 15 years ago. Yeah, that's that's really powerful in terms of the long-term thinking. And if you're going to be in the business for the long-term, you ought to, you know, think like that. Um, so coming to 2023, um, if I'm not mistaken, I remember on a panel, it, I guess last June in 2022, you mentioned that you had been selling a lot of your assets. I kind of wanted to hear if that, if that, first of all, if that, if I'm remembering correctly, and also how now that we're in 2023, if you were happy with that, you made that decision, kind of what was the motivation? And then guess what's your thoughts now about, about your portfolio? Yeah, you do recall that correctly. I sold three quarters of my portfolio in 2021 and the first half of 2022. And it was the best decision we ever I've ever made. Um, uh, we basically sold at the top of the market and uh, we did really, really well. Uh, and had we not sold, all of those properties that we did sell would have been worth a lot less than they are, uh, than they were then. So they were worth a lot less now than they were then. So, uh, we managed to bank some really good results for our investors, uh, which we would have missed out on if we didn't take that opportunity. So yes, very, we did. And I'm very glad. So what, I mean, obviously you had been in the industry for a long time and experienced a lot of growth and probably seen, you know, more growth than people who started in 2018. And maybe that's part of your motivation, but I want to, like, what was your motivation for selling? And, uh, you know, I guess it's worked out, but um, yeah, so I'm curious. I've seen this movie before. Uh, you know, I know how this works. I, you know, I, I could tell just by things I was seeing that the market was overheated and was probably going to suffer uh, some challenges. And I didn't want to suffer them along with everybody else. Uh, I wanted to avoid that to the best extent I could. And some of the signals I was seeing was when we were trying to buy stuff, uh, there would be 20 offers on everything that we wanted to buy. And probably 10 of those offers were from buyers that didn't know what they were doing. And at least five or six of those offers had non-refundable deposits, sometimes seven figures of non-refundable deposits at the signing of the contract at prices that were way above what we were willing to pay. And I figured if people are willing to pay prices like that with terms like that, why shouldn't we sell everything we own to them? And then after this blows up in their face, we can come back later and we can pick stuff back up at much lower prices. And, you know, and I think history will show uh, once this is fully played out, that's exactly what we'll have done. And so that brings me to my next question. What is your outlook right now where we are about getting in, back into the market, um, finding opportunities, just your thoughts in general? Uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're not ready yet. You know, I think the market still has more down, uh, downward risk that hasn't fully played out. 
Uh, and I, I think I, we're, we're giving it more time. You know, we, we went completely pencils down on analyzing new acquisition opportunities uh, in early 2022. And um, we've stayed that way until probably a couple of months ago when we picked our pencils up, but we're not writing anything with it. You know, we're, we're looking at deals, we're underwriting, we're doing some financial analysis, but we're not seriously uh, assuming that we're going to get any of these deals. Uh, it's just too early. There's a little bit more downside left to run, in my opinion. But we do want to stay very close to the market. We want to be able to see the signals of when that uh, may turn around in our favor, where buying will make a lot of sense. And if we're not involved in the market, it'll sail right by and we'll totally miss it. So uh, we've got our we've got our our finger on the button, uh, but we're not pushing it. So what's the signals that or what are some of the signals that you're looking for? Some of it's kinetic. I mean, it's it's uh, you, you just kind of know it when you see it. Uh, when we see uh, fewer offers coming in on properties that are offered for sale or no offers, uh, when we see more sellers coming to market, when we start hearing about more sellers that are in foreclosure or having difficulty uh, running into problems or whatever the case may be. Uh, when you start to see a confluence of all those things coming together at the same time, you know you're getting close. Absolutely. And so I want to touch on a, a thing that I think you probably have some good perspectives on. What's your opinion on floating versus fixed rate debt? Um, I guess that opinion may have evolved over the years, especially given where we are now. But, you know, it seems like floating rate de debt has burnt or is going to burn a bunch of people. Does that mean we should be looking at a uh, fixed rate or uh, or you still or is floating rate still come with the advantages that you're um you know, excited about? Yeah, I, I think floating rate debt almost always has an advantage over fixed rate debt. There's a few exceptions to that, and we've just witnessed one. Uh, and of course, when you just witness the exception to the rule, you think it's the new rule, but it's not. It's still the exception. Uh, the floating rate debt that really has been most crushing has been uh, floating rate bridge debt. And this is debt that has a short-term maturity. Uh, it's they, these are These are loans that are intended to be used for repositioning opportunities where you're going to come in buy a you know an underperforming property fix it up manage it better turn it around and resell it uh, or refinance it that's the play uh, the problem is is because there's a little bit more risk they tend to come with a little bit higher interest rate than floating rate debt from say freddie mac or fannie mae uh, our strategy has always been to borrow a floating rate debt from Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae with a 10-year maturity. Mm. Uh, but the uh, the bridge debt has a tend tends to have a three-year maturity, sometimes with two one-year except uh, extension options. But where people are getting caught is uh, the rate started out higher than agency debt to begin with. Uh, the interest rate caps are higher, meaning now that you know maybe the, they started at four and a half or five and a half percent, but now they're at eight and a half or nine and a half percent. Whereas our floating rate debt started at three and a half and is you know now at six and a half, but capped at five. Theirs might be capped at seven or eight. So it's, it's a lot more expensive, uh, but the three years is going to come due pretty soon. And it's amazing how fast three years go. You're in college, you know, like <laughs> next thing you know, bam, you know, you went from just getting into preparing for your graduation. Uh, you know, it go, it go, it goes by fast, and and the the problem is is that 
if the market turns against you in that short three-year window, uh, you, you can get caught. And now you've got to pay this loan off and you can't sell because prices have gone down. You can't refinance because rates are higher and the sizing of loans that you could get isn't enough to pay off the existing loan. So people get stuck and they end up having to sell at a loss. That's where it gets crushing. The type of uh, floating rate debt that we've used uh, with the agency uh, agency floating rate debt uh, with a 10-year maturity, I can ride out. You know, our, our loan-to-value ratios are very low. I believe in leveraging modestly. And, uh, and so our loan-to-value ratios are low enough that the debt service doesn't kill us. It impacts distributions, to be sure, but it doesn't crush us the way um, bridge debt uh, would. And we don't have the maturity hanging over our head. We have six, seven, eight, nine years still left to be able to... Uh, refinance or sell. And, and by then, I think we'll see much different conditions than we're seeing today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does using longer term floating rate debt make it harder to compete when in a very competitive acquisition market, given that the... It, yeah, it does. It does because the other buyers are using short term bridge debt and they're getting more leverage, meaning that they're producing a higher return so they can hire they can offer a higher price and still get return, you know, the same return for their investors as we would for ours. The difference being, though, is that they're taking on a lot more risk because now they're in at a higher price with higher leverage. Uh, and if things go wrong, they can lose all their money, whereas, you know, we'll be we'll be fine. So that's that's really the difference. And, you know, the the argument between fixed and floating isn't as cut and dried as people would like to think. People think like, well, if rates are low. You lock them in. Uh, why wouldn't you? And, and I do agree with that. If you're buying a single family home uh, and you can get fixed rate, low interest debt, absolutely lock it in. I did all, all the single family homes I own are on fixed rate debt, hands down. Uh, but in the commercial real estate space, fixed rate debt comes with prepayment penalties all of the time. There's really no way out of it. One way or another, they're going to get you. And the way that the prepayment penalties in most fixed rate debt works is a concept called yield maintenance, which basically says, if you take out a 10-year loan with us and you pay it off in five years, you still owe us the other five years of interest. Well, I mean, that's kind of the very basic way of putting it. Uh, that's essentially what the concept is. So that's very difficult uh, if you're in a, you know, your business plan is to buy it, renovate it, manage it better and resell it in five years. You don't want to pay 10 years of interest on a five-year business model. Floating rate debt doesn't come with that same prepayment penalty, which is where the advantage really lies. Now, the challenge comes when rates go up a lot quickly. When that happens, the fixed rate alternative right before it did that would have been the better choice, probably in most cases, if rates stay high for a long period of time. If they go back down, you're still screwed because you'll end up with that yield maintenance penalty. But if rates stay high, you could invest the proceeds uh, into treasuries and be able to service that second five years off of the investments. So there are, there are kind of ways to work around it if rates go high and stay high. But if rates are low and stay low, fixed rate debt is a killer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, um, you know, people love the higher leverage deals until they, you know, have to give the keys back. Yeah, and, until um, they don't, right. When they lose all their money, they don't like it so much anymore. 
Absolutely. And I guess, you know, as a theme from your book that, you know, you obviously want to look for, you're here to build wealth. You want to build, you want to create return. That's, you know, the part of the fun of investing, but that you always have to, the way you see deals is yes, but we want, like the main priority is not losing our principal, not losing investor capital. Um, I guess if you, that's a theme makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it seems like maybe people haven't had this practical way of thinking or pragmatic way of thinking uh, in the recently, maybe that's what scared you out. But I guess um, just to bring that in, uh, curious to learn a little bit more about just the way you, your, your philosophy in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you got to be practical. I mean, right. Our job as an investment manager is just risk mitigation, right? I mean, you you can't make money for your investors if you're losing their money. So you, if you first have to survive in order to thrive, and if you over leverage and take on too much debt or have uh, maturity exposure or take on too much risk, or you know, you're buying really bad properties in really bad areas you know, with, especially with high leverage debt, then you got the double whammy. Uh, it's just irresponsible. I mean, you know, it's, it's our job to preserve capital first, earn a return second. And we have to keep those priorities in mind. Absolutely. Um, and I guess I want to transition a little bit to start talking about the book. Um, what was your motivation for, for writing uh, The Hands-Off Investor? I guess I remember at the beginning, you told a little story about someone who lost a lot of lost her life savings which kind of encapsulates the fear around it so i'm I'm just curious to get touch a little bit on your, your motivation yeah that that was one of the motivations there were two things that prompted me to write this book one is that uh we get a lot of calls from investors uh asking about our investments and when they call they have a variety of different questions so we've probably heard them all and one thing i noticed was a lot of these investors even though they're "Quote unquote accredited investors," which means that they're, you know, they should be qualified to uh, invest in these kinds of passive investments. Which, by the way, there's no test to become an accredited investor other than having a million dollars net worth or two hundred thousand income. Uh, these investors weren't asking the right questions. Sometimes they're asking questions that, frankly, were unimportant, or they were placing emphasis on questions that didn't matter as much as they really thought they did. And, and, I, and I recognize that the reasons, one of the reasons for that was that there was no source of knowledge or no source of education on the topic of passive real estate investing to educate passive investors on what questions do matter and what questions you should ask. So that, that was one of my motivations. The other was that the story story you just related where a friend of mine lost her entire life savings by investing in a passive real estate syndication with the wrong sponsor. She didn't know what questions to ask and maybe didn't even ask any, uh, but she lost her entire life savings. And I felt like if I could write a book, it would teach people how to invest in passive real estate syndications and prevent even one person from losing their entire life savings, then the whole exercise of writing this book would be worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, I guess people think that it's all about the deals. Like, oh, I can get 18% return. That's much better than the stock market. But don't realize it's the sponsor that's the most important thing. I guess you touch on the uh, three circles of trust. I thought that was an interesting way of kind of describing this idea. But uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the three trust, uh, three trust circles are, it's a concept where if you're an investment sponsor, you need to know that your investors have fulfilled all three trust circles 
or they're not going to make an investment with you. And, and basically what that, the first one is they have to trust real estate. If, if assuming real estate is what you're raising money for, whatever you're raising money for, they have to trust that that is the viable investment, whether you're making widgets or investing in real estate or whatever it is you're doing. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, uh, you're uh, trying to find investors to fund a real estate project. If if they if your investors are like, oh, you know, real estate's toxic. That's like catching a falling knife. It's just a big game. It's late night TV commercial, get rich quick junk. Uh, you know, none of it makes any sense. If that's what they're thinking, they're not going to give you money, no matter how much they like you. Uh, they're not going to give you any money because they don't believe that real estate is a good place to put money. That's trust circle number one. If they don't fulfill trust circle number one, they're not giving you money. Hands down, period, end of story. Uh, trust circle number two is they have to trust you. If they're like, gosh, you know, I really like real estate. It's a great place to invest. Uh, but what the hell do you know about real estate? You know, you've never done anything. You have no track record, never done a deal. Uh, I'm not investing with you. I'm going to go find somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, so you haven't completed trust circle number two. They're not going to give you any money. On the other hand, let's say they like real estate. Uh, they like you and whether it's because you have a great track record, you've made a lot of money for people, uh, you've shown them some really cool before and after pictures, or maybe they share DNA with you and they're related and they're like, hey, you, you know, I gave birth to you, I'll give you money, or I've been your <laughs> best friend since grammar school, I trust you, you're smart, I'll give you money. Whatever the reason that they trust you, they have to trust you. If they don't trust you, period, they're not going to invest with you. The third trust circle is they have to trust the deal. Uh, you know, if they're like, love real estate, love you, you know what you're doing. Uh, but that property that you're buying is a total piece of junk. It's on the wrong side of town at the worst corner in, in, the, in town. Uh, it's eaten by termites. There's nothing good about it. They're not going to write you that check. Uh, they have to trust that you're bringing a deal that makes sense. So the three trust circles have to be all completed. If any one of them is not complete, they will not invest. You got to get all three. And, and so for the passive investor, thinking about making an investment, those are the things they're thinking about. You need to be thinking about, is this a strategy for you? Is this the person to execute that strategy? And is that deal the right deal for you? It makes a lot of sense. I know that, you know, it makes a lot of sense that you'd want someone who has track record and has done it before, who um has the, I guess, has been through some cycles and, and knows really how the industry works and knows how to protect capital. But there's also at some point everyone started in the industry. So I'm curious, you know, how does someone start in the industry if they don't have, if they haven't done it yet, they haven't, they don't have the track record yet. Um, they're, they're smart. They, they, you know, they know about the industry, they understand things, but they just don't have some of these things that a lot of people look for. I guess what's the, what would your advice be um, in terms of starting? Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. I mean, everybody has to start somewhere. Nobody was born with 10 real estate deals under their belt and having produced a return for investors, right? We, we've all had to start from zero. Now, the way I did it was I just started small and grew over time. Now, I funded my first real estate investment because I found a seller that would carry the down payment and I could do the deal with no money down. Boom, there's a home run on the board, right? The next deal I did, I literally cash advanced every credit card I could apply for and get qualified to get. I cash advanced them all and used the money to buy another house, fix it up and resell it and repay that money back. Highly risky, by the way, not recommending that strategy, but that's what worked for me. Uh, then the next one, I found somebody that would put up the money for the deal. Uh, if I uh, you know, gave them an interest in it and then I kind of did all the work. 
you know, and then the next one, it was like, I got a private money loan and then I got a, a signature line of credit from the bank and kind of combined my own financing in a variety of ways, each time doing bigger deals and more deals. And that built a track record. And over a number of many, many years, I was able to get a large following of investors who invested over, gosh, $300 million with me, somewhere, some big number like that. Now, you don't have to do that. I mean, you could go uh, get a job. You could go to work for a real estate private equity firm as an analyst and kind of start on the ground floor and work your way up into their acquisitions department and then maybe into asset management and kind of get your way, you get your feet wet that way or a property management company or another syndication sponsor as, uh, you know, doing anything, whatever that you sweeping floors. I mean, whatever it would be, you start somewhere and you build kind of uh, knowledge of the industry. And as you kind of promote through the ranks, you start getting into a, a position high enough on the food chain where you can claim some of these deal, deals as part of your track record. Uh, another way is you could partner with another sponsor that has a lot of experience and track record and investors. And you could bring something to the table like, hey, I found a deal. I'll bring a deal to this group that has all this experience and kind of be part of the process. And then I can say like, you know, Hey, I've got this one deal under my belt. I brought this deal. So there's a lot of different ways. The important thing is, is you got to make sure that you can document this track record, whether, you know, you got to take before and after pictures, keep a log of all the addresses, purchase price, sales price, how much profit you made, what returns you generated. Cause this, this is the exhibit that you're going to create to show people this track record to earn their trust. However, it was that you developed it. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of, you know, again, there's tons of different ways to, to start. So that's, uh, that's helpful. Um, I wanted to bring up one, one piece of the book that I, I thought was really funny. Um, you, you had wrote a chapter about waterfalls. So I guess just a little bit more context about the book. It starts out um, in a way that, you know, I guess you really teach people from the beginning, uh, you know, all the way to knowing in, advanced stuff. It's like, you, if you just started in the middle and you didn't know anything about real estate, you'd be like, wow, like, I don't understand how this works. But if you start at the beginning, it just, it just seamlessly goes into these advanced topics and you, you somehow already have this knowledge that you built up. So I'm really impressed with that part of the book. But somewhere later on in the book, you got to the section about waterfalls. I really liked that, how you started it. You talked about how you spend your whole day looking at these beautiful waterfalls, but they're really in Excel. Um, but there's one question about waterfalls that I've been thinking about. And, there's, and it's the fact that there's a difference between a return of capital and a return on capital. And I want to just see if you could, um, tell us a little bit about that that distinction because there's a lot of, in the book you mentioned there's a lot of different terms that are different in all these deals that if you don't read carefully you could just not know what you're getting into so I wanted to pick that one out to, to discuss yeah you know it's all about the order of distributions right so when 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 real estate generates a dollar of income you're going to send that dollar of income to your investors now how you categorize that dollar, uh, for the purposes of calculating the waterfalls is up to you as a sponsor. And, and, and it doesn't mean you get to make the decision as you're making the distribution. You make the decision as you're writing the operating agreement. And you're deciding, okay, when we distribute a dollar, what is that dollar? Is that dollar return on capital or return of capital? Which one is it? You make the decision. Uh, but what you have to do is you have to make sure that the mathematics in your Excel waterfall matches the definition that you've created. And, and the reason that it's important, it for, some people think like, 
oh, for tax purposes, you know, you want this to be uh, a distribution of capital because that's not taxed. Well, that's not true. You aren't taxed on your distributions, you're taxed on incomes. So that doesn't matter. They're two separate, completely separate topics. From the perspective of distributions, the reason that it makes a difference is, generally speaking, you're going to find waterfalls have a concept called preferred return. And preferred return means, let's say I tell you this has an 8% pref, so 8% preferred return. And then after that, it's a 50-50 split. Now, that's not a good waterfall, but just for the sake of simplicity, that's let's say that's the waterfall. 8% return, then a 50-50 split. So th what that means is every dollar that I distribute, you get the investor, you get the whole dollar. I get nothing. You get the whole dollar. I'm the sponsor. I get nothing. You get everything until you've been distributed an 8% return on your money. So you put in $100,000, you have to get $8,000. So until you've made 8,000 for the year, I get nothing as the sponsor. That's what an 8% preferred return is. Now, if the distribution says you get return on capital, then the 8,000 is deducted, or the, the dollar is deducted from the 8,000, right? You got 8,000 for the year you have to get to get your 8% on 100 grand. You got a dollar, that dollar comes off the eight, the eight thousand. That's what that means. Now next year, if uh, if an, another eight percent will get added onto that. So if you only got four percent distributed the first year, and the second year you get eight percent, you still get all the eight percent. And then in the third year, if you get twelve percent, you get all of the twelve because I still owe you four from the first year because you only got four. So it, it's accumulative. Now, where the distribution of capital matters, if you have it in that order, what that means is if I distribute a dollar, you no longer have 100,000 invested. You have 99,999 invested. So next year, the 8% is on the 99,999, not on the 100,000. So you actually get less preferred return accrual in subsequent years. So people think like, oh, return of capital is better because I get my money back first. But really to the investor, it's actually less advantageous because it's reducing your unreturned capital balance, which reduces your preferred return allocations in future years. That's the distinction. Mm -hmm. And so do you, you use return on capital in, in your deals typically? Now, ours are return on capital. For us, return of capital only happens on capital events. It only happens when we do a refinance or a sale. That's the only time we categorize return of capital. Otherwise, it's always return on capital. And that's just us. I mean, not everybody does it that way. Yeah, makes sense. I guess this is just a taste of the many different terms that, you know, once, once you, you finish reading the book, you'll you'll be caught up to figure out, you know, what makes sense for your strategy. Cause definitely, um, you know, it all changes. It's not just real estate and stocks. It's like, you know, there's a real estate can look a lot more different ways than just stocks. I guess stocks have differences too, but, um, but yeah, I guess, is there any, I guess I want to touch on some of the most important things that you think from your book that you want to make sure people listening take away. Well, I think the most important one is, you know, the old horse and jockey uh, argument, right? Is it more important to look at the deal or the sponsor or the real estate or the sponsor, you know, and, and I've always been of the belief that the sponsor is most important. Uh, you know, people oftentimes will ask me, 
how do I find a syndication deal to invest in? And I say, well, you start by asking the right question because that question in and of itself is the wrong question. You don't want to ask, where can I find deals to invest in? Instead, what you want to ask is, where do I find sponsors to invest with? And that's an important distinction because once you find the right sponsors to invest with, and that means you're spending all your focus on doing due diligence and research on potential investment partners. And once you've selected who's good and who's not good, then all you have to do is sit back and wait for them to present you with deals. And if you made the right choices and you picked good sponsors, they should only be showing you good deals to invest in, or they're not as good as you thought they were. So then you don't have to go find good deals to invest in. They'll come to you. So uh, you need to find good sponsors you invest with. That's probably a key takeaway. That and how you actually figure out which sponsor is good and which one's not. Yep. And if you need the list of questions to ask, there's uh, definitely recommend the hands-off investor. So, um, you know, that's, uh, it's, I'm just imagining how many people in the world have bookmarks and just have it open in front of them while they're on investor calls and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's awesome. Um, you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So starting easy and getting harder. Some people think the first question's the hardest one, but what superpower would you want if you could have any superpower? Oh, um, uh, I think, um, it might be the super, the power to uh, transport myself instantly. The ability to just snap my fingers and be in Hawaii and not have to like drive to the airport, sit at the airport for three hours, get on a plane for four hours. Uh, to be able to just kind of teleport myself, I think would probably be the greatest superpower I could ever ask for. Yeah, but you wouldn't get to, you know, fly your planes. Well, this is true. I wouldn't get to do that, but uh, instead, I'd be having fun on the beach or uh, or you know, walking a deal or uh, meeting with a potential investor. Uh, I could definitely in enhance my productivity considerably. Absolutely. Yeah, that's similar to mine. I, I, I want super speed. The same, same, similar reasons. Also, <laughs> I think it'd be fun. Um, so what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? Well, you're probably the one everybody recommends. Rich Dad Poor Dad had a big influence on you know my success and kind of the way I think about things. Uh, when I, I read that, gosh, 20 years ago, I think, really made a difference for me. It's one of my classic favorites. Uh, I also like another book called um, TED Talk. It's TED Talks. It's written by the uh, the head of the TED Talk organization. Really good book on on delivering presentations and communicating your ideas, which in this business is really what it's all about. If you're looking to make presentations to investors to get them to invest with you, you have to be able to accurately convey your message. And uh, it was a really interesting book on learning ways of conveying that message. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I'll definitely check it out. I think my the new question would be, uh, what's your favorite book besides your sad poor dad? Because it's that's definitely the sweeping favorite. But, yeah, um, yeah, you do need reason. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, what motivates you to continue every day? Uh, just the fact that I love what I do, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And um, you know, this is fun for me. And uh, I, you know, I just uh, I I think when you when you love what you do, uh, it's not like work. And, you know, I just enjoy doing it. Absolutely. So what advice we, would you want to give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? Uh, to uh, just get started. I mean, you know, there's uh, the only way I got to where I am is by putting one foot in front of the other, setting an objective that I wanted to be a real estate investor. And what do I got to do to do it? And learning, reading, learning, uh, and then most importantly, doing, getting out there and actually 
making offers on real estate, talking to sellers and uh, figuring out how to make that dream a reality. Absolutely. So since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So what's one question you have for me? I want to know how is it that you can be so smart to make it through these university courses? Because I could not get myself up in the morning uh, to uh, do the college thing. And I have so much admiration for people who do. How do you do it? Um, well, I think to me, I, I'm lucky because uh, I have chosen classes that I find interesting. Like I really put my curiosity in the driver's seat as much as possible, where um, I get, like you said, it doesn't feel like a job or a burden when you're genuinely interested in it. Obviously there's work that comes along that you rather not do sometimes, but genuinely feeling like I am becoming a better person or I'm growing, I'm learning. Like, you know, my brain is filled with more useful things that I can then, you know, continue to use to make a difference um and to the, the aspect of self-improvement is something I, I really love um i study philosophy and to me it's like it's the it's the ultimate question how do i live a good life and so when i'm reading about aristotle like reading aristotle reading plato reading all these you know smartest people to ever have lived i feel like i'm learning how i will live a good life going forward and um to me the fact that I'm answering the the hardest question or I'm working towards, or I guess it's a never, never going to, maybe I'm never going to find the final answer, but working towards this, this uh, quest of trying to live a good life um, and trying to understand what that means and how to do it. It's really uh, fulfilling. And, um, you know, part of me realized that living a good life is constant growth constant um, learning. And um, that's kind of how I, when I feel motivated, I feel successful is because I know I'm, I'm growing and I'm learning. Wow, it's amazing how similar you and I are, because that's exactly, I think, part of what motivates me for real estate. I mean, every day is a learning experience. You never see the same thing twice. It's a fun business. Absolutely. I think that's something that motivates me uh, or interests me about real estate, too, that uh, a lot of um, meet a lot of good people that could teach you a lot, but a lot of, a lot of teamwork. Um, but it's really just problem solving, like doing a really big, interesting puzzle and um, trying to and learning how to do it. And integrating the changes of in the in the world constantly um so yeah i kind of i definitely i definitely agree with that and feel that and i think a lot of people who are successful in real estate have you know have that curiosity and that drive to grow and learn because if you're not learning you're you know, the market's moving on without you that thirst will serve you well <laughs> well i'm glad and i'm glad that that's one thing i don't have to cultivate because I've, I've gotten it but i'm <laughs> definitely looking to uh continue to grow my, my knowledge base and uh, going forward. So um, appreciate you coming on the show. I, I learned a lot on this episode, as I'm sure many, everyone listening um, has as well. Is there any final remarks you want to, you want to leave us with? Uh, I think, uh, you know, my final remark is, uh, you know, be sure to check out the book, The Hands-Off Investor. Uh, if you're interested in investing in real estate, get out there and do it. If you're already investing in real estate, hopefully we'll cross paths one day, uh, either as buyers or sellers in a transaction, or maybe as an investors and sponsors in a transaction. Who knows? So uh, uh, I just say, uh, you know, get out there and, and go for it and go crush your goals. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you at the next conference that we're both at and um, appreciate you coming on the show. Brian and everyone listening, keep making milestones.
Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.